Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Next year here in LA, we're electing our next mayor and people are starting to announce their intentions to run. The latest is Los Angeles City Councilman Kevin DeLeon, who announced his candidacy yesterday. Even if you don't live in LA, DeLeon's name might be familiar to you because not so long ago, he was a powerful figure in Sacramento. KPCC's Libby Denkman was at LA's El Pueblo Historical Monument for De Leon's announcement. De Leon cited recovery from the coronavirus pandemic, housing instability, and homelessness as his top priorities. It is time to chart a new course for the city of Los Angeles. He also emphasized his own low-income upbringing and said the experience connects him to struggling Angelinos. I can remember the deep shame, the look on my mother's face, when the landlord would come pounding on that door, demanding his rent. De Leon was the Democratic leader in the state Senate before challenging U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein for her seat in 2018. He was elected to the city council last year to represent Boyle Heights, El Sereno, Eagle Rock, and parts of downtown. The 14th district has seen turmoil recently. Former Councilmember Jose Huizar stepped down last fall under a cloud of federal corruption charges. De Leon joins two other elected officials in the race, City Attorney Mike Feuer and fellow Councilmember Joe Buscaino. For the California Report, I'm Libby Denkman. In July, as a response to the worsening drought, Governor Gavin Newsom asked the people of California to voluntarily reduce their water use by 15%. But so far, at least, we've only reduced our water consumption by less than 2%. And in some places, like San Diego and Los Angeles, water use has actually gone up slightly. KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero tells us what's at stake if we don't use less water. Water leaders are ringing alarm bells about a possible third year of drought. It's so dry that it'll take 140% of normal rain and snow to fill reservoirs. Carla Namath is the director of the Department of Water Resources. She says the long-term forecast shows a drying trend. That means there could very likely be little or no water to deliver to many farms and cities next year. It is important for all Californians to be doing what they can be doing in the face of uncertain availability. Still, the state is sticking with voluntary water restrictions, relying on local water agencies, cities, and counties to enforce stricter measures. For the California Report, I'm Ezra David Romero. Los Angeles County has two juvenile halls, but state officials say they're both failing their duties. The facilities are accused of treating the young people housed there so poorly that within the next two months, they'll have to either fix the way they operate or remove juveniles from the detention centers altogether. It's the first time a state board has found any juvenile hall in California to be so unfit. KCRW's Tara Atrian explains. 
State inspectors have found Barry J. Nidarf Juvenile Hall in Silmar and Central Juvenile Hall in Boyle Heights are continuing to mistreat their young detainees, most of them Latino or Black youth. In June alone, there were at least 11 incidents involving pepper spray. Under a previous agreement with the California Attorney General's office necessary to operate, the two juvenile halls were supposed to create a more home-like environment where detainees can receive an education and mental health services. Inspectors say the centers failed to follow that, particularly around the kids' mental and physical health. Earlier this year, overseers found the facilities were out of compliance with the state rules. A follow-up review this month found the problems persisted. But now with the new admonishment from the state, the pair will have about 60 days to show they can be compliant with the regulations. The L.A. County Probation Department says they're hopeful they can meet the deadline. For The California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. Afghanistan, Haiti, New Orleans. With every disaster, Californians often apply thumbs to phones to send money to people and organizations, raising funds for those in need, which explains the presence of a bill on the governor's desk now, a bill that promises to boost state oversight of charitable fundraising online. KQED's Rachel Myro has more. Newsflash. Not everybody professing to be operating from a place of goodness is telling the truth. Some of the people and organizations that say they're raising money for that cause you're eager to support are lying or overstating what they can do. It's really amazing how long it's gone unregulated. Joan Harrington is Director of Social Sector Ethics at the Markle Center for Applied Ethics at the Santa Clara University School of Law. In an earlier life, she was in-house counsel for the London-based nonprofit Save the Children. Despite the odd regulatory crackdown, usually following a scandalous news report, she says there isn't a lot of oversight from government. You know, in most states, it is the Attorney General's office that regulates charities, and they're very busy with other things. Harrington adds the wary donor has to wade her way through pitches from ineffective or mismanaged institutional charities. The disappointing performance of the Red Cross in Haiti comes to mind. Remember this recent report on Here and Now? In 2015, an investigation by NPR and ProPublica found the Red Cross raised half a billion dollars after the 2010 quake and rebuilt just six homes. Now advocates are calling for people to donate to local Haitian organizations instead of international aid groups. The problem with that advice is most of us are unfamiliar with who's operating in Haiti and how good a job of it they're doing, especially online, especially on social media platforms. Literally anybody can upload a distressing photo and use compelling language to persuade you to send cryptocurrency to a foreign bank account immediately. Now, don't wait, do it now. It's the Wild West when you look at online charitable um, giving. Assemblymember Jackie Irwin of Camarillo co-authored AB 488, along with Attorney General Rob Bonta. The bill, which is now on the governor's desk, would direct the AG's office to draw up a registry of charitable trusts. To raise money legally in California, charities of every kind would have to get on that registry and stay on it by proving they're transparently doing what they say they're doing with your donations. Seems kind of basic? Yep. We looked around and uh, knew that we were starting from scratch. And that's why, you know, there were so many stakeholders that we had to work with. And a lot of the tech companies, they operate in many other states. And as California goes, often the country goes. 
Presuming Governor Newsom signs AB 488, she says lawmakers can improve the oversight mechanism in future years. In the meantime, experts like Harrington advise you to avoid making spur-of-the-moment, emotionally-driven donations to people who appear to be newbies on the scene, whatever that scene is. I welcome everyone giving. I love giving. I would never want to discourage anybody. But if people ask me for my opinion on where they should give, I say, Find someone who's been in Afghanistan. If you can give locally in Afghanistan, do that. But, you know, your friend fundraising for Afghanistan who's never been is not the right way to go. Do your research before you hit the donate button. Sites like Charity Navigator or GuideStar maintain ratings and provide links to more information. And for goodness sake, if you're asked to pay by any method other than credit card or check, just don't do it. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. With extremely high COVID-19 hospitalization rates in the Central Valley, pediatricians are warning local doctors to be on the lookout for a related condition found in children who've been exposed to the virus. With more, here's Valley Public Radio's Mari Bolaños. Six-year-old Bryce Moore shouts from one side of the small soccer field where he is practicing for his first game. His mom, Fresno resident Jennifer Moore, describes him as a happy-go-lucky kid. But nine months ago, he was anything but that, she says. Moore and her husband tested positive for COVID in November 2020. She says Bryce, then five years old, tested negative and didn't show any symptoms associated with the virus. And so my husband and I got through that and recovered. And then at the end of January, um, we picked him up from school on a Friday and he had a little bit of a headache. That was nearly two months after she and her husband contracted COVID. Over the next few days, his headache got worse. He developed a fever, refused to eat, and could barely walk. It was quite difficult to see him go through that. 
It took three visits to the emergency room at Valley Children's Hospital in Madeira before his doctors finally asked more if Bryce had been exposed to COVID in the last few months. And through that, it came up that my husband and I had had COVID. And it was like it clicked right away. They knew exactly what it was. Doctors diagnosed Bryce with multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, or MIS-C, a post-infectious phenomenon that is occurring in children, according to Dr. Reshma Patil, pediatric rheumatologist at Valley Children's Hospital. It is not a disease or a syndrome itself. It is essentially what I like to call a um, tornado or cascade of events that's happening when the immune system is on overdrive. As schools reopen amid a surge driven by the Delta variant, Patel says she's been working to educate pediatricians across the state on how to identify and treat Miss C. And so right now we are seeing a uh, big surge in the Delta variant and rise in COVID-19 infection cases now, especially in the unvaccinated populations. And so we are uh, bracing ourselves for a MSC surge soon to follow. The symptoms for Miss C include fever, headaches, neck pain, and sometimes even vomiting or diarrhea. Because it's a new phenomenon, doctors have a hard time diagnosing it, she says. But the most obvious sign is if a child has these symptoms and has been exposed to COVID. It is occurring about two to eight weeks after the initial COVID may have been present in that child. There were nearly 5,000 reported cases of Miss C and 41 related deaths in the nation as of August 27th, the CDC said. That included nearly 600 cases in California. While Miss C is considered fairly rare, it is disproportionately hitting Black and Latino children. And given the number of total COVID cases in the Central Valley, Jennifer Moore says she's concerned about Bryce's health as he enters kindergarten. There is that fear there because I know we do our best to stay safe, but we don't always know what everybody else is doing. But also, I want him to be a kid. That's why she also urges parents to take the virus seriously and follow CDC guidelines until a vaccine is available for kids younger than 12. These days, Bryce is back to playing soccer with his neighborhood friends. But his mom says because the long-term effects of Miss C are still unknown, doctors will continue monitoring his health. For The California Report, I'm Madi Bolaños. The city of West Hollywood is going a step further when it comes to COVID-19 vaccination mandates for local businesses. Like Los Angeles County, proof of vaccination will be required at indoor bars, nightclubs, and lounges. But this week, the West Hollywood City Council approved the implementation of new mandates for businesses like restaurants, marijuana dispensaries, gyms, and personal care services, including nail and hair salons and barbershops. Under the new mandate, people must provide proof of one dose of the vaccine by October 7th and proof of full vaccination by November 4th. People who work at businesses in the city will also have to provide proof of full vaccination by the beginning of November. And to the north of West Hollywood, officials in Fresno County are considering a plan to offer a $500 incentive to get more county employees vaccinated. Under the proposal, each county employee who gets vaccinated for COVID-19 by November 16th could receive a $500 deferred payment. That money would go into a retirement savings plan and would not count as part of an employee's pension. According to the Fresno Bee, the Board of Supervisors did not take action during its meeting yesterday as opinions were split on whether to incentivize vaccinations. 
And that is the California Report for Wednesday, September 22nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening and talk tomorrow. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And Blue Shield of California, Closing the health care gap since 1939. Learn more about their commitment to quality and fair health care for every Californian at news.blueshieldca.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.